HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. How do you take a restaurant dream and turn it into a reality? We all know building and operating restaurants is an expensive endeavor. Oh yeah, everything breaks, customers are fickle, employees don't show, and they are inherently risky for investors when you don't have a real product to show them. But what if there was a way to test run your concept before committing to a 10-year lease? And a way to get investors to try your food in a restaurant setting before they agreed to hand over their cash? Behold, the pop-up concept. A roving dinner party where your focus group pays for their ticket. Hopefully they like it, word of mouth is strong, and you're able to leverage existing diners into investors. Today my guest is California native Nico Russell, and he did just that. He started Oxalis by hosting dozens of dinners, feeding hundreds, and creating a motivated customer base along the way. The pop-ups were hailed in Gothamist as Brooklyn's best pop-up dinner, and Thrillist selected it as the best tasting menus for under $100 in New York. In December of 2018, he found a spot in Brooklyn along with his partners, and they opened a brick-and-mortar using a mixed fundraising strategy. Today on the line, we'll be talking about why he chose the pop-up model at first, cooking in the south of France early on in his career, growing up in California, and how the first year of his restaurant is progressing. Chef Nico, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so you grew up in San Jose. You're uh, a California guy. We were talking right before we went on about you know Cupertino and and being there while the the tech boom was kind of going on. Uh, what was it like being in that area as Google, Facebook, everything is exploding, and you're just like a high school kid who's figuring out your life? Yeah, it's a little. It was interesting for sure. I think. Um you know, seeing all that, not really realizing what's going on um, until like taking a look back now and kind of seeing the way the area is um, and how it's changed so much drastically. Um, you know, I think it's, you, know, you, you you see these tech companies and they're just kind of a part of your, you know, all these companies and people's parents work there and they're, they're kind of just a part of the, uh, the culture where you live and you don't think much of it because you know, you're a 14, 15 year old kid. And then, you know, you leave the area and you kind of take a step back. And you're like, oh, wow. You know, like something really crazy is going on here. Um, but it was great. You got really interested in food at a young age. But why and who had impact on you in that area? Was it a family member? Did you get a yeah. young, did you get a cooking job really young that stuck? Like what got you interested in it? I was kind of always interested. Um, 
uh, I think, you know, I was kind of always one of those kids that was just like poking around the kitchen. Um, just like, what's going on here? It smells great. You know, um, I think, uh, you know, my family, obviously my mom, um, a lot of, um, part Filipino. So a lot of that, you know, that part of my family, um, uh, was always cooking something very different and I was always kind of you know excited by that. Um, the ethnic food specifically. And then also growing up in the Bay area, it's like such a, it's similar to New York in the sense it's just so rich ethnically. Um, you know, all these things at your disposal, at your disposal are incredible. Um, like where I grew up, there's just incredible dim sum. Some of the best I've ever had in my life, just like all around. And I had no idea. And then when I would leave the area and go somewhere else, I'm like, Oh, that was incredible. You know? And it's hard to kind of have a reference point for something when you grew up surrounded by it. Um, but yeah, it was awesome living there. When you were growing up in your house, did you have a lot of traditional Filipino meals or were you more of kind of like an Americanized home that did the whole pizza, Chinese food takeout thing? Like, was it a blend? It's a, it's a bit of a blend. I mean, my mom cooked a ton. Um, you know, I, I think I've said this before. I don't think, you know, there's some purists that probably listen to some of the things that we ate and they'd be like, oh, that's not totally this or totally that. But, you know. You know, we were American, right? I think um, we were like a lot of people in the area and we were like second, third generation. So I think a lot of the food was, um, you know, an interpretation of something a bit more authentic, um, but with a little bit more of a take on it for, um, I don't know, just Americana style, I guess. When you were in high school, did you think to yourself when you were, say, like a junior or a senior and people are starting to make decisions about where to go to college, you ended up enrolling in uh, in culinary school. You went to the California Culinary Academy. Was that something that was a number one option? Was it, was it something that you decided and, and your mom or your parents were, were against? Like what was the mindset when you were deciding what to do after high school? I mean, I didn't have much of a plan, to be honest, <laughs> in high school. I think, especially, too, where I grew up, I mean, a lot of those kids are going to great UC, um, like Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Diego, Stanford, or going across the country um, to one of those great Ivy League schools. And for me, it was just kind of, I was always really interested by something. I kind of had an idea that I was going to do something different. I wanted to do something different. It was never like, I want to go do four years undergrad and then do grad. It was like... I don't know if I ever loved that idea. I mean, I, I love the idea of education, but nothing, at, I don't know, I want to do something completely different. Um, and I started to get a little bit of the idea after I got, like, my senior year of high school. I started to kind of get a little bit of steam rolling and um, surprised the hell out of everybody. <laughs> and they're like, what? What do you want to do? I'm like, yeah, sure. It sounds great, right? And this is like, you know, 05, 06. So it's, this is kind of when the American chef is becoming kind of, snapshot of what we see what we've seen the last five years you know um you know different you know, like the french i was in california so all these chefs you know alice waters and thomas keller and you know they were iconic and um i was so interested in that world um i thought that was really really cool and i had i knew nothing about it so it made me more interested <laughs> i wanted to like dive deeper um, but yeah, that was that was kind of what happened. You were searching at a time when it became an actual, realistic career path as as something that could be um, a full length career that was less like a trade and more mm -hmm. like a pursuit of of excellence. In the same way that somebody says, you know, I, I think I want to go to school and be a social worker or a doctor, and people say, oh great. You're, you're following your path. I feel yeah. like we're around the same age and right around that time, people were saying, oh, chef, that's a real job now. Um, did your, um, did your friends react that same way or did they think that it was like hilarious that you were going to go to culinary school and not, not do a traditional thing? I mean, they were stoked. I think they were very happy about it. I remember my, uh, my girlfriend in high school, her dad like scoffed at it. I remember like, I was like, kind of like, he's like an old school guy. So I was kind of assuming he would. But I remember him like, like, like visibly like, what are you doing? And I was like, All like right, you're man. throwing your life away. Yeah, or? just like that's like I understand how this could be a fun career when you're young, but you know, this there's no money in that. Yeah, you know, it's like again, and it goes back to like a lot of the people in the area at the time were thinking um, on a bigger scale because they were there for they had moved. Most of them had moved to the Bay Area for um, a job at one of those tech companies, and you know, they were financially doing a lot better than chefs. <laughs> when did you really start to buckle down and get serious? In terms of your resume, it's 
it's been really serious for a while now. Yeah. Did it always start off that way? Did something mm-hmm. click in in culinary school, or was it your first job where you saw like French technique? Um, because you've really you've been in the fine dining world for a really long time now. Yeah, it's. I think it was. I mean, it was a bit of. The first two years in school and out of, you have a lot of experience where you're like, well, shit, I'm not, I'm like nowhere near ready for something like this. Um, But in school, I had a big moment right after I started where, you know, 17, 18 year old kid. um, And, you know, my, my best friend, he passed away. Like it was very abrupt and he was always a big supporter of mine. Um, He was a big part of my life, I think. Um, you know, and he was living with me and there was a lot going on in his life and, you know, it happened. And I think that like that moment, I think I mean, that moment for me, was like a big like, all right. You know, because he always taught, he was one of the people who's like a champion for me about going to culinary school. So I think that was a huge moment for me where, you know, when that happened, I was like, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to try to go hard for this. You know, for, for you know, he was, you know, he and I grew up together. We, you know, we were 18 years old and he, you know, he passed away. And I think that we'd known each other since we were like six, you know, and I think that like, um, I think that was a big thing because he was always kind of the guy in my ear, the positive person. No matter what he had going on in his life, he was always kind of my champion and really supportive for me. So that was that was one big moment. Um, and then another one was uh, after my first cooking job at the Ritz Carlton in Half Moon Bay. I remember it was a big kitchen, and I just was kind of like you know, I just I was an, I was an extern, you know, and didn't feel like I had a real role. I just felt like a guy there. Um, I don't know. I I wanted to dive into something a little more hands-on and where I had demanded more of me. And that just kind of led me down this path um, to where I got to fine dining. And so what was your first real job out of culinary school? Uh, you stayed in California, right? Yeah, I worked at the Ritz-Carlton in Half Moon Bay. Um, it was a hotel. It's a hotel um, just off the coast between like Santa Cruz and San Francisco. Um, beautiful area. Great, um, and obviously extremely fancy and, and very yeah, expensive. So it's like a destination, um, a bit of a place, right? Because it's up on the bluffs, uh, overlooking the Pacific, and you know, I mean, first real professional kitchen. I don't think it's you know, I'm sure you can say the same thing. Your first professional kitchen is just like everything's overwhelming. You know, um, you don't really know how to use time as like your ally. It's just your enemy. Then <laughs> it's just your enemy. You don't, you don't, you have no control of it. Um, and that was, that was where I started cooking a daily prep race against the clock. To, never win. You be, never win that one to be ready for service and never ready. Uh, did you get an opportunity to work the line there? Was there a place yeah. that you, uh, after that, that you really kind of dug in, uh, as you know, lead line cook, maybe they put yeah. you on, on hot, on the hot station and you were like, Oh wow. Now I'm really learning things about. Uh, steps of service and yeah. and that type of team element interaction. Yeah, I was there for a little less than a year. I stayed a little bit after my externship. And again, when I left there, I, I had seen some good food because we had done a lot of dinners with some chefs in the, in the Bay Area. And, you know, it's, it's a nice it's a nice hotel, obviously. Uh, but then I left there and I went to work for a chef named Roland Passo, who's a little bit of a legend in the Bay Area. Um, he's got a restaurant called La Folie. It's like his flagship. It's in Russian Hill. Um, and then I worked for his company. I worked, he had a bunch of brasseries. He has a bunch of brasseries all throughout the Bay Area. And I started working at, um, one of his kind of nicer restaurants he had in San Jose. Um, it was like his American restaurant. I remember it's called Tanglewood and, you know, it doesn't exist anymore, but it's a really young team. It was some good cooks there. And then, um, I was there for about a year and a half and I was a sous chef there at like 19. It's good. It gave me a, way too much experience, and I I was ready for. Um, and that was when the economy bottomed out about '08. Um, and then I stayed with this company for about another year, and opened an, opened another restaurant for them in San Jose, and as the executive sous chef when I was like 20. Um, so they gave me a lot of opportunities there about managing. Um, and obviously at that time, you know, with the economy the way it was, like you really had to watch everything, you know. And I think that they were really. They taught me a lot about all of that or showed me a lot at a young age. And then obviously like just managing people that are like twice your age <laughs> or like Yeah, I want I want to talk actually more about that. So you're executive sous chef at twenty years old. You probably look young, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and people are they know that you haven't been there for ten years, right? There yeah. are people that have been there for a lot longer than you. How do you how do you motivate? 
and how did you deal with the pressures of being very young but having a lot of responsibility? I would always, I think a lot of cooks will tell you, I would always just do that thing where I would just try to hero ball it and I'd be like, if you don't do it, I'll do it, you know? And I think that was, I learned then that that was not the way to do things. Um, so I tried to like command respect a lot, which was like just by the way I worked and I would just, I was like going a thousand miles an hour. So I was like, you know, it was, it was hard to really focus. Um, and then I think it was just kind of, you know, trusting yourself a little bit. They gave me a lot of support, you know, and they were like, you know, um, his corporate chef was this other French chef, uh, Joel Guillon, and he would walk in and just like parade me around as like, you know he's our guy so whatever he says goes you know and then like feeling that i mean he put a ton of he put a ton of trust in me he also rode me like hell but which was great um i think but that helped a lot that they had trust in me mm-hmm. and then then just i think the cooks responded to that and then also just like the way i worked and how i treated them and you know i just i wasn't like do this and i would do the opposite it wasn't like do as i say not as i do kind of thing i would try to really you know, we would try to do the right thing together, which I'm sure is working in a kitchen is different. You know, Some, sometimes your sous chef will tell you something and then they'll do something else. So, Were there any moments when you found yourself maybe having to do things or instruct someone to do things that you hadn't actually done yourself? Because you were you were fairly new to a professional kitchen Absolutely. environment and you know you can't too young to do it. You can't know everything, right? Absolutely. And I imagine that at a fancy place like that, you're maybe even seeing product come in that you're not that familiar with it just it feels like a really steep learning curve were you um you said you're going a thousand miles a minute were you feeling confident or were you like fake it till you make it it's a bit of both to be honest um i had you know we had gone i remember we were testing the menu i had so many dishes and i remember they were like it was just too much to take on but I got I I got I felt like I got a good amount of them and I was pretty it was pretty quick but I mean it was a bit of like learning as you go and just strong foundations as a cook will help you go anywhere you need to go I think and um, I was fortunate that they gave me a lot of that and you know I, a bit of faking it you know you're learning it on the fly and you know you figure out the way things work you know less so at like a, this go like this goes well with tomatoes less so like okay, this is acid, this is sugar. You look at it from like a, a purely like elemental standpoint, as che- cheesy as that sounds, you look at things like from an equation point of view, right? And then when I got into fine dining, that was really helpful. How did you end up in France? And were you at, is it Mirazur? Yeah, I was at Mirazur. Um, I was working at Restaurant Danielle here in New York, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of chefs from France come in. They do dinners, they do lunches. You get to meet a lot of people, which is great. Um, and then I remember I met Chef Mauro, I don't know what year it was, but it was at the end, I was there twice at Daniel, um, and it was at the end of my first time there as a, as a chef de partie, and I was, you know, I was trying, I was going to leave soon, and I got in a conversation, and their food was just so unique, and I was just so in awe, I was like, I love the way you cook, you know, it was just, it was, it was so unique, it was French food, but it was so light, it was also just, I mean, I don't know if you've, I mean, the food he cooks is so beautiful. It's so aesthetically just, it's incredible. Also tastes delicious. Tastes very light in a way that would surprise you a lot um, if you knew what you were eating. Um, because the common the common thought about French food is that it's going to be like loaded with butter and a lot of fat. Bigger, and, yeah. And many, many proteins. Okay, and, and was his food, did it have the similar components or was it just totally unlike things you'd ever seen at Danielle? It was completely different than Danielle, I thought. It had a lot of the similar components um, of French cuisine. Um, it definitely it had a more modern uh, touch, for sure. Um, but it didn't feel like, I don't know, it didn't feel gimmicky when I saw it. Um, it felt very natural. Um, and then... He also, he, you know, he comes from the Arpege family, which he worked for there for a long time. So, obviously, the the way, the respect for vegetables and everything was on another level. When you were at Danielle, you you came in there and did you did you have expectations about what it would be? It's such a famous restaurant group led by a famous chef. Did it? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find it to be an intimidating experience? And hell yeah, and. <laughs> And was the kitchen 
collaborative. I've actually, I mean, I would love to hear your experience. I have heard that it's actually a quite a quite a good teaching kitchen. Did you find that to be your experience? Yeah, I think you know they went through a bit of a change. I think my first year or second year, where when I started, it was you know the visa. The J1 visa was for a lot longer than it is now. So I think the staff was a lot more European, um, which was super overwhelming for me. You know, I came from a, a kitchen in California that had four cooks. <laughs> so I was like, what? Just a huge uh, brigade. Um, and, you know, I got to see a lot of things there. And I got to, you know, I think teaching, it it demands you to be a good cook to work there. You know, um, whether that's, um, less so one-on-one and more so just kind of them showing you and you kind of learning because of it's a very busy restaurant. I think working in busy restaurants is the best thing you can do, right? Because, you know, you're constantly busy and you're constantly just refining yourself because um, you have to keep doing these things over and over and over and over again. And, um, yeah, I just you, the menu was, you know, it's so rooted in classical cooking that, like, some of those things, I think some of those things technology has kind of overtaken, but you don't do them there you know you still stay rooted in the classical techniques which is great and i think that a lot of people that's lost on a lot of people you're saying that technology would allow you to execute it the same way but yeah. like take a shortcut but they still make it you're talking about a sauce that you could cut out a step <laughs> by putting it in a, in a machine but you're, they're still doing it as a, a 13 step two-day process or something like that yeah well i mean there's still a lot of things that te- that I mean, Danielle, I think from a kitchen perspective, is a lot more modern than people probably give you credit for mm-hmm. um, from the from the things they use and some of the things I think people would be really surprised to see that. Um, Any Anything specific that you can give an example oh, of? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> no. You're talking about like from an equipment equipment perspective. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, obviously braises and, you know, slow cooking things, you know, technology has definitely taken its way We're there. We're talking like soup yeah. and things of that With nature. With some things. Yeah. Um, the, meat, the meat roast is still your roasting, mm-hmm. you know, a la minute and... Um, I think, um, but uh, yeah, there were moments when you do something and you'd be like, wow, okay, it says to do this, I have to do this, you know, and I, you, you do it and it's, it's beautiful, I think, because I was also there when they wrote the book. Um, so I got to see that whole process, you know, and that was cool because that book is, it's a, it's a, it's to me represents so much of how that restaurant is. It's, you know, it has the things they serve every night that are kind of the 20 at that time, 2012, 2013 take on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it has a whole section that are like the classics, you know, you know, like uh, Tete de Vaux, you know, Canard La Presse, you know, like all these things, Chartreuse, all these things that are like crazy. I've never worked in a, in a fine dining restaurant like Danielle. A lot of people listening, I'm sure have never even been inside the kitchen, even as a diner. Is there are there recipe books or are you shown one time and you have your own book and you take notes and then you recreate the recipe? Like how, how do they maintain the level of excellence and consistency? Is it just you're shown and then you must reproduce? It's a mix. Um, they'll show you something, you write it down. Mm -hmm. Um, they'll have a recipe for something. Um, they'll go print it out. You know, their database is huge. Um, that's a mix. I think, you know, they have so many recipes. They've been around forever, right? right. They're a restaurant that's, you know, 25, almost 30 years old soon. You know, I think they just, there's so much to use. You know, there's so many flavor combinations that they've done. And um, if not that, you know, from, from classical cooking and, and interpretation from that, you know, that they're, that it's so great that like they, they show you these things and, you know, it's, it's up to you to kind of take notes and retain and re- reproduce these things. I know it's impossible to distill an experience down to, you know, one snapshot, but what from Mirazur is something that you lean back on or think about all the time now that you're doing your own project and you've got your own restaurant? Is there something that that is just in the back of your mind that you think about a lot relative to that experience that you had there in South France? Uh, flexibility, I'd say. Um, the way they cook there... And I think it's changed a lot. I was there four years ago. Um, but it's super flexible, I think. And from, from that, I mean, um, things change a lot during service, um, like the menu. <laughs> like, things change. And I think it's a bit daunting 
immediately when you first step in there and you're seeing things like just changing and you're like, what? You know, from a lot of cooks perspective, you're like, I have a mise en place. I have my station. Let's start service. And there it's like, I have mise en place. I have this, but I also have this. And then like, maybe we'll roast it. Maybe we'll grill it. Maybe we'll smoke it, you know? And then like, that's changing. And you're kind of like, you know, it, it's, it demands a lot of you as a cook. And like earlier when I talked about seeing like the elemental level and like the equation for things, I think that like, you need to be so confident as a cook to cook that way um, and really trust yourself and have a firm understanding of what you're cooking and how things work to, to just be like, all right, now we're going to glaze it. Then we're going to roast it. Then we're going to sear it. Like three, di- three tables, three different preparations. You're like, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, we chef. You know, you know you're kind of like, you're a part of that. And it, it's so helpful, I think, because, you know, I think it can be stressful for people. I'm sure people listening who haven't been in a kitchen like that, who haven't seen that, it's a stressful thought. But I think from what you take from that and what you get from that as a cook, it's like, it's, 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 it's everything you need. Because especially when we start doing the pop-ups, and I know we'll get into that in a little bit, but um, when we're in someone else's kitchen and things are happening, I had that ability to, you know, okay, you know, let's tweak this a little bit. And let's change it. So that was that's one thing I always take from it. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to, stay in the in the in france where you ran into steve wong yeah. a buddy of yours from childhood and over a bunch of wine a <sighs> pop-up idea was born so everyone stick with us we're going to talk about oxalis when we come back from the break today's program was brought to you by roth cheese a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying our podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And together we host Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, and entrepreneurs who are changing the face of food. How did these folks decide to hit the brakes, start over, and become inspiring chefs, entrepreneurs, farmers, and activists they are today? Browse episodes of Why Food wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined today by Chef Nico Russell. He's the owner of Oxalis. It's located in Brooklyn, and it started off as a pop-up all around uh, all around multiple restaurants in Brooklyn. It was at uh, Egg. It was at Brooklyn Kitchen. And the idea was born when you sat down with your buddy, who you hadn't maybe seen in a while, and you reconnected yeah. in France. And... Tell us what you guys came up with that night over uh, multiple bottles of uh, of red wine. Yeah, it was uh, it was Christmas. I remember um, about four years ago. Um, I had kind of just finished up my time at Mirzer, and um, my visa was coming to an end. So we had kind of linked up in Paris one night, and you know, he was kind of asking me what he wanted, what I was going to do if I went when I went back to the states. And it kind of he had been incubating small businesses for a company, and he was he was like, Man, "What about a, doing a pop up?" We kind of just started getting this idea, and you know, the wine was flowing. Um, just to be transparent, and we uh, I got really stoked on the idea, you know, because I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what to do or how to do it and i think like a lot of cooks and you know chefs out there when they're, they want to take the next step it's such a daunting task you know there's like from being like a exec sue or a cdc to like doing your own thing on your own without any support it's just crazy right it's a crazy thought it's very daunting and you know he was like you know as he is he's very supportive enthusiastic so he's like we got this there's no problem so then um it wasn't till about april four months later when we did our first dinner we did a few private dinners um just to get our feet under us um but i think our first big one um was just before april um and then june we started our big residency 
and that was kind of June 2016, I think was kind of when Oxalis was born, um, as we like to say, um, because we did the dinners we did before were kind of just learning curves and our friends. Um, and then June 2016 was kind of like open to the public and people just who didn't know us just buying tickets. And the, sorry, the first one was at what location? Um, Private? June 2016 was at a place called Fitzcarraldo. Okay, um, in Bushwick. Yeah, in Bushwick. Cool, yeah. Not too far from here. And uh, the... The headache of having a full brick and mortar, you know, you've got a lease, you've got a lot of things that come with it, but pop-ups can be very challenging in their own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I want you to talk a little bit about some of the difficulties you faced with uh, operating a, a, a business that doesn't actually have its own home. Yeah. Um, a lot of things in my apartment at the time. <laughs> uh, your living room turned into your equipment shed sort of yeah it was was one of those and then we i was fortunate enough that i got a friend of mine had a kitchen in long island city um so we got to use we got to use that kitchen for the whole first year um which i know a lot of people that's big getting a space where you can kind of offsite and getting you know the ability to access a combi oven the ability to access you know ranges hotel pans you know because those are things that you're not going to be able to buy you know and getting a kitchen to help you out and you know taking a little corner of their kitchen a little corner of their walk-in um you know a few few days out of the month was was huge for us and they were it was a catering company so they were closed on the weekend so every weekend we would be in there and just like banging out stuff um whether it's prep whether it's like r&d whatever it was we just would be in there i think that was that was huge i think you know, not having your own space, being in someone else's space, you know, you have to be very careful, obviously, because you need to be extremely respectful because they've let you into their space and just making sure that you're not, you know, that you're leaving it better than when you got it. Um, but also <laughs> just kind of <laughs> it's frustrating times in there. So like just making sure that like, you know, if their staff's helping you out that, you know, you know, you're being supportive and kind of, kind <laughs> because i sense that there were times when things weren't exactly the way you wanted them <laughs> that was and, a big part and of you're it. in someone else's house so yeah. you're you can be constrained by yeah their, the parameters of their space perhaps yeah we thought the first the first few of Fitzcarraldo were great they were way better than expected um i mean not that we expect them to go terribly but like you know a bunch of people from Danielle helped helped us out early on, right? So from like a ser- service perspective and like a kitchen perspective, we had all been working together for years, so like it was pretty fluid. Um, but then when we started to like really dive into it and get into it at Egg. Um, I remember there were there were nights, you know, when there were learning curves, you know, and things that like our menu used to be a lot bigger um, at our at our permanent location. Now it's, it's pared down a lot, but that's because we kind of learned how many courses and kind of what people's attention span had in them. Um, but yeah, it was, <laughs> there were some nights that were, that were tough, you know? When you talk to people from Mirazur or Danielle or, or or other cooks, were they surprised that you decided to go the, the pop-up route and that you didn't take um, a CDC or an executive chef job or that you just said, I'm going to take six months and try to fundraise for my restaurant. Like, did it, did it catch anyone off guard or was, were they just about everybody? Yeah. Just about everybody, especially like the, the years prior were so kind of rigored into like this, this and this. And it, it, I think it definitely laid the foundation of what is a common path in that world is like, you do this, this and this and you travel, then you come back and you're CDC somewhere and then, you know, you'll get your own place, you know. And I think that I was kind of like, you know, I was kind of like, fuck that. You know, I want to do something different. And again, kind of back to who I was when I was planning to go to culinary school, tying that back into it, that like, I want to do something different, right? This is a path laid in front of me and I want to just go right um, and try to take a bet on myself, maybe. Um, uh, I know, I remember the people at Mirrors. <laughs> just they were hilarious antonio is the chef there now and he was he would be just be texting me and he's just like his pop-up looks great it's like how are you doing this you know and i was uh, you know i was like i don't know you know and there was there was a lot of times when you know when people started to respond well like gothamist and you know brooklyn mag and people started to write about us it surprised the hell out of me to be honest because i didn't think that we were i was just cooking you know i i it was it was it was all just so 
it just happened, right? It wasn't like, okay, we're going to do this. Like, it wasn't us sitting around a table. Like, we had a plan, but like, I remember the days of the dinners, they just, they just took their, they kind of took shape. And we were kind of just a part of that natural process. And when people started to respond well, it was like, it was a surprise and it was definitely gratifying. Your partners are in, in, in the restaurant are Piper Christensen and Steve Wong. Yeah. Um, it's a long journey from getting drunk with a buddy and being like, this is going to be awesome. Let's do it. And then you wake up the next day, you got to put pen to paper. You have to make a lot of decisions. How did the three of you join together? What's the division of labor like during the pop-ups and how has that changed or remained the same since you've gone uh, brick and mortar? So, yeah, I think like, so Steve and I, are the, we're the first two part. We're the founders, basically. We're the ones that um, that started this and kind of formulated the plan, all the branding, everything. We just figured out um, it was all us. And then Piper came on about a year and a half into the pop ups. He's been. He was a friend of ours, um, and you know, he was. He always kind of kept a close, you know, eye to what we were doing. I was living with him when I moved back from France for a little bit, so he got to see it firsthand. Um, and then we needed someone to kind of take over the beverage part because we had some people who started with us and then they had kind of moved on and he jumped in right away. He was a natural fit and, you know, he did all the Brooklyn kitchen dinners with us that whole summer and that was kind of his first summer with us and it was a nice little trial run. Um, that residency was great for us to get a ton of space. Um, and then I think at the, at the end of that year, we were, we had found the space where we were going to be and it was like, oh, sh- okay, this is happening. Um, and then we kind of approached Piper as a beverage director. And, you know, I think it was in, just a natural fit. He does a great job, too. I think he and I link up. He used to cook professionally. So he and I definitely can talk about things in a way that it's unique, I think, probably, to a beverage director-chef relationship. Um, he understands it a little bit at a deeper level. Not like but other others don't. But I, feel, I always feel like I get from him a little bit more of a cook's perspective, which is pretty cool. Fundraising is so tough. And I remember when my brother and I were trying to do our own project, we had people come over to the apartment. We went to their apartment. And, you know, the point at which people are interested to the point in which they write you a check can seem like millions of miles away where people say, wow, your food's so amazing. But there's something about transitioning someone who loves your idea and your food into an investor can you talk a little bit about how the two of you or the three of you all together were able to um convince folks during the pop-ups uh to become more than just a diner and Mm. and if you had difficulty doing that how did you find other investors yeah i think um getting people i mean you gotta get used to people telling you no um i know that are people listening they're like yeah of course but i mean you get told you'll go through great lengths and you'll cook like two tastings for people and at the end of it they'll be like we love your food but no you know and i think that's that can be demoralizing but i think that just getting people to kind of you're selling someone on on an idea of what you think it'll be right so they're putting faith in you that you'll make this come to fruition um, so they're, they're, they're really just buying you, um, and kind of, you know, again, you and I talked about this before you can show someone numbers and, you know, you have to make sure you create all the right systems so that you're efficient with these things. But at the same time, I think you have to give people peace of mind and trust, you know, um, that you'll endure the hard times, <laughs> um, that, you know, when it's not all fun after the opening, you know, that there will be a bump in the road and you will make it through that, um, and you won't just run off to Mexico with their money. <laughs> when you were in the thick of it with the pop-ups, people are coming, they're loving it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any doubt in the process of going to brick and mortar? Were there nights where you, at the end of it, you said, that was great, but I just, I don't know if this is ever going to happen for us? Or were, were you always just like, this is, we're, we're making progress forward steps or were there days where you really felt like you were taking a lot of steps in the wrong direction um i don't think the dinners were ever a step where i was like oh we're finished but again you know we treated those dinners we attacked them in a way that we're like this is all we have 
you know, and I think that that's the way you have to tackle a lot of things, especially if this is who you are. Um, you're the pop-up person. This is how we got to be known for a little bit. And, you know, every pop-up is like, you know, games on the line. You have to perform. And I think that there were definitely days when we were like frustrated and bummed. Um, there were days when I was like, you know, this is going to be nothing. Um I thought that, um, but I think just kind of trying to see, stay true and kind of, like I say, enduring to see the bigger picture, seeing something through was something that is kind of the person I am. I want to see something through all the way. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think uh, I was very fortunate enough that my partners were supportive and positive to, to help, help, help me see the bigger picture when I needed it. I want to talk about uh, expectations of both the diner and also managing press expectations and how that can uh, impact your your headspace and yeah. and the restaurant. Um, so you were, you were reviewed in both the New York Times and New York Magazine like within two months of being open, which is sort of the normal time frame. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on either or both of those reviews and and has it changed the way you've done anything in the restaurant or behaved uh as a business person yeah i think we were really fortunate that we got reviewed so early um we felt like you know we had some things we didn't have our liquor license for our first two months right which is tough i think um our beverage director pivoted did a really great non-alcoholic pairing but that was something just as operators that was tough for us you know, it was a surprise for us. Things didn't come through the way we thought they would. So that was a little bit frustrating. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the reviews were something that, you know, we expected them coming. Um, that was a little earlier <laughs> than we expected, but we were ready. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought we were. Um, you know, there's good notes in there, I think. We, you know, it's funny. People talk to us about the reviews and they're very positive and we're very fortunate enough to be reviewed. You know, I think a lot of restaurants don't get reviewed and I think that we're really stoked that they chose us um but you know we've definitely taken some things i think that constructively that that they've said about you know we never wanted the nice thing about the pop-ups which is so funny because people talk to us about the pop-ups now they're like you guys were like you know so fun at the pop-ups like the pop-ups were chaos a little bit you know (laughs) like you know people who never went talk to me about it and they're like but the pop-ups were so i was like how are you telling me like you know what i mean like it was chaos for us like my head was spinning and then now that we have our own space and we're trying to get more relaxed in our own space, you know, we're, you know, there's a new, a new life to this, right? And we're kind of growing into it. And I think that, I think it's so funny too. And we've gotten that a few times where people are like, but like the pop-ups, we're like, sure. I mean, like you never went, but you didn't see, but sure. Okay. Um, you know, it's one of those things that like, I think we're learning in our new space and I think we're kind of figuring out who, who, who we are there. Um, and you know, um, the layout of the restaurant's very interesting and unique is what we love about it. We adore that. Um, that when the guest walks in, the kitchen's right there. You know, we're the first people that greet you. And I think that, you know, I love that. I think that it was something that we all decided as a team and even me specifically that, you know, the cooks greeting the guests is awesome. You know, I think that, again, it's 2019 and I think that people, the infatuation with who's preparing your food now um, is huge. And I think that having the guests you know, like when you go to like ramen spots, you know, and they're like, you know, they're like yelling when you come in. It's like so fun. It's like, you know, and I, th- we, we thought about that a lot. And um, it was just one of those things that I just, I, I loved when, when I saw the space. Is there a dish right now on the menu that you feel re- perfectly represents the current incarnation of the restaurant? Um, and if it's, if it's close to that, can you walk us through it a little bit? Tell us about its components and maybe how you decided uh, to put it on the menu. Yeah, um, there is. Uh, I mean, I think they all do, but <laughs> um, there's a dish we're doing on our carte blanche, which is kind of our tasting in the dining room. It's the fish course. It's a it's a trout we get from Hudson, New York. Um, we cure it and lightly smoke it. And then we serve it with a sauce made from bergamots and some riced cauliflower that's been seasoned with a little bit of togarashi and bergamot juice with some puffed uh, skin of the fish and then some lovage leaves on it too. So I think that's a good example of us because, you know, 
I like smoke. I like acid. I like those flavors. But I think that it's a little bit of a refined version of those big, bold flavors that we love. Um, the fish is very simply seared and then just cooked in a salamander. You know, it's, there's no, like, we don't put it in a bag. We don't do anything crazy to it. It's just, you know, it's just a nicely cooked piece of fish. Um, and then the bergamot sauce is, you know, it's bitter, but it's kind of refined because put a little butter in it. So gets smoothed out a little bit and then the spice and the cauliflower from the togarashi is something that it's a little hidden you don't expect it um but again it's it surprises you if you look at the plate you see like three components and you're like okay great chop bergamot love it i get it and then and that's how we want the menu to read we want it to read like three four ingredients so you can eat it like that and then once you get it you're like oh the togarashi and then this is bitter and then this is smoky and then this is it you know and i think that like that's a good example of how our food is it's like you see it and you're like oh cool i understand it and you eat it and you're like i do not understand i'm that's so much more than i thought was going on and that's kind of how we've gotten our food to be now that you're in your own space and you've been in there for a while there's so many pieces to actually having your own restaurant that I really, as coming from transitioning to pop-ups to having our own space, which is we had a year where we were in someone else's space and you get kind of used to that. And then you get in your own space and you've got, who knows, insurance, equipment, uh, labor, all these things that were not the same and the pop-up space. I want to know one thing that is just it caught you totally off guard <laughs> and then if there's something that just like is part of your day now that kind of drives you crazy you're like wow i really wish i was in the kitchen working on stuff and now that you're a co-owner coach and a chef you're just getting pulled away a little bit as an owner of a restaurant yeah i mean i think there's a there's a lot of there's a million little things right mm-hmm. that pull you away and um you know i think I mean, there's a few. I think during the construction phase process was was a big thing for us, right? Because now that's your building, it's your space. You're dealing with, you know, your contractor, your landlord, your designers, all these people that are, you know, they're all they all have their own, you know, agenda a little bit, um, and kind of just being the middle person in that is a little interesting. And getting used to that, it takes a little bit, I think, for people who have not done it before. Um, and then I think now in the day to day, I think it's just, uh, I mean, it's all pretty much straightforward. I think it's just dealing with, uh, you know, little things that are ours in the building, you know, that like, if it breaks, if we were in someone else's space, we're like, Hey, this thing's not working. And we're like, Oh shit, this thing's not working. <laughs> and, uh, oh, no, I'm the, I'm the guy that I have to go, yeah. go to, to get it fixed. It's okay. We have, we've been pretty lucky on that, on that aspect, but like, you know, like our, you know, if our roof leaks, okay get up on the roof you know like uh you know like things like that you know if uh you know something happens in one of the basement rooms okay let's go seal that you know let's go do something let's Mm -hmm. go you know if there's a leak somewhere let's just fix it you know um those all fall on you and just being prepared to kind of be flexible i know a lot of people there's a lot of content of chefs being like it's being so much more than a cook you know and it's like it is it is um but also building a space where you know like we talked about it having trust with the staff where they can where they can they they can do what they have to do um and yeah there's just a lot of things there's a thousand things there's a lot of restaurants in new york right now that do a tasting menu you can find it at a lot of different price points yeah in your own words how does your restaurant differentiate itself and how do you define what your uh tasting menu experience is like yeah, I think we're defined because um, I think we're we're ex- I, I use this word accessible, and I'm an owner, so I don't know. But I mean, I feel like we're an accessible restaurant. Doing the menu we do for sixty dollars, you know, we're really, you know, we're we're trying to find nice products. Um, we're working really hard on getting good products and cooking them well with, you know, techniques that I've worked I've used in all these other restaurants. Um, doing things similarly that I've been used to doing in all these grand maisons. Um, but I think that's, I think the accessibility of what we're providing at the price point is differentiates us for sure. Um, and then also, you know, even in restaurants that aren't in our category, um, yes, because we have that menu. We do have an all cart in the bar room too. 
Um, so we do have two menus. But I think, you know, from a diner's perspective, I lived in New York before we did this. You know, I, uh, I know New York City dining. I, you know, I've been at that small plates restaurant that says you need to get nine plates a person, you know, and mm-hmm. your check average is about a buck 20. And you're just like, why not just go and get something where it can all be together? And, um, and that was, that was also a response to it. Less so me working in tasty menu restaurants, but like more so me being pissed about being like, don't tell me how much food I need to eat. Um, and don't tell me how much food I need to eat because it's X amount of dollars on, you know, your check average, you know, like, you know, I should be focused on, you know, giving me a unique experience or me, me getting a unique experience. And, um, that's what we chase with the guests is providing something that's unique. Before we went on air, you told me that you, uh, left the restaurant for the first time this past weekend. Well, put me out there. Huh? <laughs> uh, I think it's a, I think it's a really big moment when people open up a restaurant and they have that first day yeah. that they are gone. Yeah. How did it go for you? Terrifying. Uh, full disclosure. It, I was, I was a wreck the whole time. Um, you know, one of my best friends got married in California, so I was the best man in the wedding. So it was one of those moments where, you know, life takes over, you know, which is, very it doesn't happen often i think for people like us who are so in like so in it with these things and can't take us you know take like an ostrich with your head up out of the hole and see the rest of the things happening but you know I, I went there and it was a beautiful ceremony but you know i got to i think it was good the team got to grow a little bit without me um i wasn't there as support for them um which was great and i think that there were some things that they got to learn and we all got to learn and we all know the answers to questions that we didn't have before which i think is huge let everybody know where they can find the restaurant, uh, give the um, address, website, and what the hours of operation are so they can come and visit you. Yeah. Um, so we are located in uh, Crown Heights on Washington Avenue. It is 791 Washington Avenue. Um, you can find more information at oxalisnyc.com, O-X-A-L-I-S-N-Y-C.com. And then we are open um, Sunday. So we're open... Tuesday through Thursday, 5.30 to 10, and then Friday and Saturday, um, 5.30 to 11, and then Sunday again, 5.30 to 10. Chef Nico Russell, thanks for being here and sharing some of your story. Congratulations on the new restaurant opening. Thank you. Uh, you're a couple months in. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll talk again after uh, you get some rest, and, yeah. uh, and we'll see how things are going a little bit down the line. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you. Everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of The Line. You can find all the episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts or by going to heritageradionetwork.org. And we'll be here next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRM family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.